Every Sunday, um, I'm continually amazed that uh, when I hear the sermon, um, how many parallels there are. And once again, I could almost say uh, this is a sermon discussion. It's a sermon discussion about the same principles that we've heard today, and you're going to hear them, Um, but particularly uh, the time period that we're looking at is 1800 to about 1860. So I've been asked to, um, yeah, so, okay, so um, hard to select um, seven. Actually, we started off with six turning points, and I argued for at least seven. Uh, So here we have, we've jumped from the Renaissance and Reformation uh, to today, in which we're going to look at the 19th century. Um, The 19th century, I think, as I progress forward, you'll see how important this is for the development of Christianity. So without further ado, we'll move on. Um, We've come a a chunk from the 16th century, and just to remind you of what happens in the 18th century. Uh, The 18th century uh, is often called the Enlightenment. Um, Of course, uh, you didn't see that so much in English because the Enlightenment was happening even more importantly, in France or Germany. Um, in French, it's the century of light, le siècle de lumière. Um, I like the German even better, Zeitalter de Aufklärung, right? So it's a, a, a Zeit is time, a time frame of the, uh, the uh, Aufklärung is Klaron. You can see it's a clearing so Alf coming out of a clearing up, as it were. Now, you might say there's some positive things. America is birth based on the idea of equality and rights. We've heard rights today as well. Uh, so there could be some positive things about liberty, equality, fraternity, freedom, all the French Revolution things. But I think in terms of what it did to Christianity and the church, um, there's a lot of negative things, rejection, of tradition meant uh, that the light that they were seeing now uh, was far beyond what traditional light might be. Uh, Reason through the scientific revolution became everything. Uh, There was a great skepticism of Christianity that's going to begin, and indeed a skepticism of miracles. So you can see here la raison, uh, and she's holding the light, uh, and so forth. Really, three things are uh, heading uh, our way. Scientific revolution had brought an understanding that nature uh, can be known uh, by yourself, right? Previously, uh, ideas were much more deductive, that someone told you the first principle and then you worked it out. From the Renaissance on, especially scientific revolution, Um, Nature is known inductively, that is, seeing is believing, observation. Uh, Nothing wrong with that, but it came into conflict with uh, age-old tradition. We know the case of Galileo and so forth. Uh, The philosophes, not philosophers, but in French philosophes, were a new literary intellectual, and they challenged the beliefs of humanity uh, and nature and politics, Especially original sin, uh, for many, went by the wayside uh, for this idea of tabula rasa, right? A clean slate in which 
human sin is not there, and therefore progress and human perfectibility is possible because people are starting from the idea that they can now help themselves. Industrial Revolution as well challenged the beliefs in the necessity and dependency that one might have, uh, the capitalism especially for all the good that it has, is this idea of private property based on self-interest, not the interest of the community um, and so forth, moving forward. Everyone knows Montesquieu, um, French lawyer, uh, man of letters, wrote Persian letters in 1721, a a satire on a correspondence between a Persian visitor to Paris, uh, showing, of course, uh, how the absurdities of Western civilization. Uh, From this great book, which is very famous, Persian Letters, came this sort of cultural relativism uh, into the uh, conversation in Europe. Uh, Christianity, in Montesquieu's idea, had failed. um, And so tolerance, uh, which uh, many phases of tolerance that we're currently even in, tolerance, uh, intolerance of tolerance and intolerance. Um, Montesquieu's great book, however, De l'Esprit de Roi, right, The Spirit of Laws, uh, showed, of course, that uh, nature itself was now something that one could interact with, knowing Nature, like it used to be knowing God, was important. This whole idea of mother nature now comes into play and is going to play through the 19th century uh, rather than God. Uh, The encyclopedia was a grand uh, program of the philosophers to decide uh, that what they needed to know about the world started from now. Um, The French had a good idea of starting over all the time. So here the encyclopedia was that a group of editors uh, gathered scholars living in the day and said, write an article on this, write an article on this. So if you read the encyclopedia, um, it wasn't dependent on anything from the past it was what we now know about the world, um, and it started over again. In fact, even the French Revolution, as you know, started the calendar over again. It's year one, right? And then they, they went on and on. Human equality, uh, while uh, have some good elements to it, um, was in this case, though, uh, turned on its head, skepticism of received traditions. We know Mr. Voltaire, right? It's his nom de plume. Uh, he has a much longer name. But his famous phrase was écraser l'enfant, uh, crush the infamous thing. The thing was, of course, the church and Christian tradition. Uh, in his novel, Candide, or Optimism, because Christianity only gave pessimism, um, it was a small book where the young man, Candide, sheltered life by a kind of endemic, sort of perfect environment. Uh, Leibniz was still... Uh, talking about optimism within tradition. Um, And in this case, suddenly Candide is alone. Uh, He realizes his disillusionment. So the whole lesson of Candide was we must cultivate our own gardens, right? So now it's human uh, self-interest as we go. Um, What we find uh, here is a growing sense of what uh, is in the Enlightenment called deism, uh, I, I said ser- <laughs> the sermon today 
on paganism and so forth uh, fits in. Uh, Deism became the new standard, not by everyone, but by some of the leading scholars of the day. Uh, Several things. Um, Scientific revolution at least taught them that the universe was created as a perfect machine, and therefore they didn't want to give up the idea that it must have been a god, but it's not the god any longer of the uh, Bible. It's a sort of God that made the perfect universe and then left. Oftentimes they use the clockwork image of God, uh, and people in the 18th century were amazed at uh, how you could make a clock, wind it up, and it would run by itself. Uh, God does not communicate any longer with uh, humanity. Uh, The new new priest becomes the scientist, who of course communicates with Mother Nature, but the priest— can no longer communicate with God who has left. So this mechanistic view of the clockmaker image is certainly there. Uh, The last of these uh, philosophs, I I can go through this for for years on the Enlightenment, uh, was the famous Jean-Jacques Rousseau, as you know. In his political ideas, social contract, um, society, in his mind, has a negative effect on people, he says, uh, we are born free, hence no original sin. It's society that puts us in chains. And we're going to see later on people like Karl Marx can pick up on it one side, although Rousseau's uh, responsible for democracy on the other side. But in this case, it transforms what you're born with in a more de soi, uh, a love, right, of self love, a good thing, he thinks, into a more propre which is pride and fear of the other and competition. So in his mind, the social contract would bring you back. Now, Rousseau is born and raised in Geneva, and from a a liberal Protestant background, he does uh, convert to Christianity for various reasons. Back and forth he goes. But he parallels a lot of the Reformed idea of even Augustine, but twists it. Um, And so at the end of the day, God's providence— Uh, which is uh, full, almost like Adam Smith's invisible hand, the marketplace for capitalism, Uh, all of that control of the world is given now to the people themselves, right? The idea of le peuple, or das Volk in German, uh, that wasn't really a word. You didn't say the people before the Enlightenment uh, because there was no public opinion, but now public opinion is there. So in some ways, the French Revolution is a religious revolution as well. Um, If you look at the picture uh, that was all over, the iconic picture of the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, it's supposed to look like the Ten Commandments, the iconic view of the Ten Commandments, right? And above it, the chains are being rent from the left side, and as it were, an angel of light, the Enlightenment angel, has come, and here are the Declaration of Rights, Uh, We can look at a lot of these things, no doubt, and say there's some great stuff here if you don't twist them in a certain way, right? So it parallels very closely to Christianity, but it turns from it. In fact, the great uh, few years into the Reform, um, when things didn't seem like they were working enough, and they start to eliminate uh, tradition, they kill the king uh, and the the, uh, queen, Uh, they have a cult of being, (laughs) etre supreme, right? And so they parallel Christianity perfectly. 
They've got the mound there, which is almost like either Golgotha. It's uh, the Eucharist is being done here. Um, and uh, Jacques-Louis David, who is the uh, artist of the French Revolution uh, and so forth, uh, paints this picture, but he also is part of the iconography of what's going on here, and so in the, indeed civil religion is there. Now, little chart here, spent a little more time on it. I try to figure out how do we visually see what's happening over time. We talk about separation of church and state. Well, we talk about Christendom, so what is that? Well, if you look at the medieval world, all the functions that we would expect a state to have, as well as a church, were basically in Christendom. Remember, the word domus in Latin is household. So, in fact, uh, if you have a kingdom or freedom, right, we have a lot of those dumb words, uh, we have Christendom, right? So, the state, except for brief moments of Charlemagne and others who try to kind of create a state, was basically within. Uh, We can say then that membership in a church was uh, fairly involuntary in that case. Uh, The state was almost non-existent. Um, From the period from about 1500 to 1800, almost every state selects one of the variations of Christianity, um, and it becomes the state church. In that case, state churches still did most of what we expect the government to do. Governments were mainly uh, there for diplomacy and war. Uh, The uh, government was very small. The budget was small. uh, Standing armies were very small. Even the American Revolutionary War was fought with mercenaries, right? You know, so a lot of German mercenaries uh, who stayed, stayed in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and so forth. So the modern state had that, and it's still rather involuntary, although one could say from 1500 to, the pres- uh, to 1800, there were some dissident groups growing up, but the real flowering of denominations, of course, is going to happen in the 19th century, hence the, the selection I have today. Now, in the modern world, um, the modern church, of course, is off to the side. Um, it's nice that we can still have a role in some things soup kitchens, Habitat for Humanity, other sort of things that we do. But largely now, we move in since 1800 to a world in which the modern state wants to take over everything as if it was Christendom in a kind of pagan way, right? So that's where we're moving. Okay, so uh, here, um, just saying again, uh, by 1648, the first ever European-wide agreement, a treaty, to stop the wars of religion was the Treaty of Westphalia, in which it said whose religion, uh, whose regent, their religion, right? So we have that, and we have uh, the uh, 19th century beginning. Uh, there's a revival in the uh, early 19th century. Uh, Rousseau was a pre-romantic, but if we talk about the romantic movement, not falling in love, but a kind of new movement, it was a reaction to the Enlightenment as if the Enlightenment had brought progress through reason and so forth, and all of a sudden you have the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the French Revolution, of course, is throughout all of Europe, uh, the Caribbean, North Africa, and so forth. And all of a sudden, maybe reason is not alone is not enough, right? So the whole idea uh, in the early 19th century romantic movement is to begin to say, perhaps, 
reason has a place, but it's not everything. What about the mystery of the world? And so nature becomes something big, uh, and uh, there's a continuity. Uh, Catholicism has a second chance. Uh, François uh, René Visconti de Chateaubriand, if you've read his book, The Genius of Christianity, is trying to get back to saying there is mystery, there is miracle. Um, and But the, the great question becomes, right, not who are we. The big question in the early modern world, as you know, is what is the commonwealth, right? So that's what uh, Adam Smith tried to answer with his book. But uh, early states here, right, uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, Pennsylvania are called commonwealths of, right? The question from the 19th century on is no longer who are we, what is our commonwealth, but with capitalism, who am I, right? And so putting the individual up, if the Renaissance was the birth of the individual, it was only for a few people. Uh, the real birth of the individual is really the 19th century. Um, and so the question that uh, Abbe Siez had asked in the uh, French Revolution that started off, qu'est-ce qu'il y a la terre état, what is the third estate, again, right, we, uh, the 19th century becomes I, and it's a, a looking inward uh, Catholicism revives, but it becomes much more of a female practice of mass, and there are other things going on that we'll have to talk about later. Okay, so the main purpose here is to now say, why revivals? What's happening in the Christian church? Um, I, could talk, I could talk a lot about so many revivals, but what I tr- I'm trying to do here is to give us some background to our tradition here in the Reformed uh, Presbyterian side, so I'm going to I'm going to lean it toward that because we can only have so many case studies. Um, Napoleon's defeated in Waterloo in 1815. It doesn't really mean that the French Revolution's over. 1830, 1848. There's uh, past revolutions uh, from that, but Europe is relieved. A lot of the governments of Europe, a lot of the rules of Europe have passed. People are trying to rebuild. And, of course, they're going to turn to Christianity. But what type of Christianity, right? Miracles, a lot of tradition have been swept aside. It's kind of hard to go back to the farm once you've left, right? So this is going to be a problem of trying to revive Christianity. We do have deism, so U.S. is in God we trust, and the motto stops there. You could say that there's perhaps more there and perhaps not. There's some great problems in the 19th century, and so what we're going to see um, in the next couple slides is that Christianity is revived, but because of the question of who are the people, social care and action becomes very, very important. In the British world, um, slavery is going to be taken on much quicker than in North America. William Wilberforce, for example, we have to mention him, an English evangelical politician, philanthropist, starts this campaign. Uh, by 1833, there is an act for the abolition of slavery um, and so forth. So there is a lot of action going on. Not all evangelicals are always aiming uh, their uh, aiming their social care interest in the right direction. There's a lot of, um, a lot of problems uh, as well. Uh, some evangelicals go over the Irish potato famine. And, you know, if you, 
you're, if you want a bowl of soup, you have to convert to, to our brand of Christianity. So there's a lot of bad starts as well, but social care is going to become very, very important. Okay, so starting in the Scottish tradition, where does our church come from here, right, uh, on? Uh, we have to mention Thomas Chalmers. Um, Scottish studied math, actually, uh, University of St. Andrews, licensed as a preacher. Uh, very often these people who went to university sort of studied everything, the true liberal arts traditions yet uh, in this case. So he studies mathematics. Uh, 1815, uh, again, this feeling of uh, growth after Napoleon uh, in Glasgow, starts a big church, has a uh, reputation as a preacher. Um, Samuel Wilberforce, the son of William Wilberforce, who himself uh, was one of the greatest preachers, uh, calls Chalmers uh, all the world is wild about Dr. Chalmers in his uh, preaching. Uh, so it'd be sort of the, the, the era of Billy Graham, right, that kind of feeling uh, there. He's a minister uh, in a parish in St. John, about 2,000 families, 800-plus without any connection to the church. He gets down to actually doing things, building schools, uh, having teachers, um, and so forth, and so eventually he becomes, uh, as the chair of moral philosophy at St. Andrews. But we don't stop there, right? He had an interest in, uh, in uh, leading his people forward. Um, within the Scottish Church, he helped to create 220 uh, new churches, but at a certain point where the state church, again, you saw my chart, right? The state, the state tries to keep taking over things that the church once did throughout the 19th century, and so we really get the growth of free churches and denominations. In this case, a party within the church, uh, kind of like Puritans within the Anglican church, a non-intrusionist party says uh, local uh, parishes and congregations ought to be able to have something to say in terms of a new pastor coming in. And so in 1843, 470 clergy leave, and they start the Free Church of Scotland. And so from then on, we get a lot of different uh, ideas. Now, Chalmers as well, remember mathematics, uh, was a great economist as well, uh, not so much known. His inquiry into the extent and stability of natural resources, he's involved in these things. Christian and the civic economy of large towns and political economy. In this case, he's arguing for deserving poor relief, but he looks around and says uh, some governments are throwing money at the poor and they're really not giving people dignity. We've talked about human dignity today. And so the idea was, no, we have to create jobs so that they can work rather than just giving them money. So it's very interesting that way back here um, in the early 19th century, uh, we've got uh, really an evangelical Presbyterian who is arguing for these things well before many of the other hot shots in society kind of come up with some of these ideas. So uh, you can look at that someday. Uh, uh, Chalmers, though, when he started managing the parish of St. John, uh, the, poor, the parish poor cost the city 1,400 pounds per year. After four years when he's working it, um, it only cost him 280 pounds, right? So in fact, uh, he did a great uh, thing. Now, once Napoleon's defeated, uh, again, the Scottish are on the move. There's two Haldane brothers. Robert is a little bit more well-known. He's a wealthy, very wealthy uh, Scottish evangelical. 
1797, during the French Revolution, he actually sells his castle, right, gives it all up, um, leaves the Church of Scotland earlier than uh, uh, others had done, and founds the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel at Home, uh, in which he built chapels, often called tabernacles, um, and supported missionaries and so forth, established 85 churches in Scotland and Ireland. After the war, and he could actually now travel to the continent of Europe, in 1816 he starts off with his brother and evangelized two places that he thought were the most important, especially for the Reformed community, one being Geneva, of course, but many of you might not know that Montauban in the south of France was one of the most important uh, Huguenot reform uh, cities as well. And so he lectures in these two places, and he's talking especially to theological students who he believes have an interest, but he really needs to turn them around. So he does. He writes several books that are very uh, informed. In Geneva itself, now I have to say, um, I wrote my dissertation on this fellow you're going to see, Jean-Henri Merle d'Aubigné. So I've written uh, several books on Geneva. So I'm going to try to cut this down. <laughs> you know, don't ask somebody what they're doing their dissertation on, right? That's the worst question, uh, or else you'll, you'll be there all day. So, but in uh, Geneva, this is the birth, the, the city of Calvin. Um, in 1831, they start an evangelical society in Geneva. They're still within the Reformed Church there. Uh, but eventually, of course, there is a fight, and they form a free church, Eglise Libre, <clears throat> and leave the national church. But here's some of the key things. Sounds like Luther. Um, the study of the Bible as the infallible Word of God. Um, in Geneva, uh, many reports that within the last hundred years, uh, they really went to seminary and didn't study the Bible, right? You studied poetry, and you studied the classics and all these sort of things that made you refined uh, as a world leader and so forth, but not really the Bible. So uh, especially the book of Romans was used, much like uh, the breakthrough with Luther. So that's very important. Um, they also returned to the Reformed creeds. Not everyone does, but several do. Um, a lot of the creeds of Calvin had been given up in the early uh, 18th century, and so uh, going back to that. But here's going to be the problem, and I, I think this is where our, our church um, wants to uh, have a, a great stake, is there's the gospel and there's also the church, right? And unfortunately, we're going to see some of the revivals revive the gospel but not the church, and so this is going to be a problem uh, as we move forward. Now, uh, Jean-Henri Meryl d'Aubigny, picture at the top, uh, was a great scholar, studies uh, in Berlin with some of the best people, comes back, uh, pastors churches, ends up in 1823 as the uh, pastor of the Franco-German church in Brussels, uh, but he's also a personal preacher for the new king of the Netherlands, and so has a lot of influence. Um, he's pouring his life not just into the parish, but young men. And this particular guy, uh, Guillaume Hrum van Prinster, um, later on becomes a famous historian and, and within the government and serves. And uh, a revival goes through the Netherlands where the Reformed Church is very strong and becomes stronger in uh, an evangelical tradition. This leads, of course, to Abraham Kuyper, the Reformed 
a theologian who starts a free church, the Re-Reformed Church, the Gereformeerde Kerk uh, in the Netherlands, starts the Free University of Amsterdam, free from the state university, um, becomes prime minister for a while of the Netherlands, uh, and years later, this free university in the 60s, when there weren't sizable Christian Protestant universities in the U.S., at high level of philosophy and theology, where do people like Francis Schaeffer go? Well, the Free University of Amsterdam. And there we now have, we don't need to go there anymore, but uh, we, we have the reversal of many of these things because of these uh, faithful men, you might say. Well, back to Merrill Daubigny. Uh He's a professor of history. Now, here's the point I need to make. Believe it or not, until about 1850, if Protestants knew about the Reformation, 90% of what they would know is about Luther, but very, very, very little. I was surprised when I chose this dissertation topic. Very few people really knew about the French world and what Calvin actually did. There's very little known. So it's really um, Merrill Daubigny who writes 13 volumes um, and 85 other writings about the uh, Reformation. Most of it, in fact, prior to the work I did was in German, so I had, you know, wading through all these German dissertations. But um, it's amazing that it's his, uh, his volumes about, about Calvin that really begins to uh, show Calvin outside of the French world um, and what's going on. So uh, you could always look at that. He's an international preacher. Now, very important, though, he pours his life into these other young theologi- theologians and uh, people, in particular Henri Donon, if you know him, uh, uh, he's in, you know, as it were, Merle Daubigny's Sunday school class for a long time. Uh, he encouraged these guys to go out. Uh, in 1852, he founds the Genevan cap- uh, chapter of the YMCA, and even more importantly, after some experiences of of actually being a chaplain in war, um, he founds the Committee of the Red Cross. And so the Red Cross itself, right, has been founded from an evangelical young man who uh, practiced uh, under these people. So that's something of Geneva. Uh, going back to the British world, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, very, very important. I'm trying to select these people for unique things that they did. Here's Spurgeon at 19 years old. So any of you who are younger, <laughs> you know, go for it. Uh, 19 years old, he becomes the uh, pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London um, for 38 years, becomes the Prince of Preachers. Uh, congregation is 10,000 people. It's not Texas. It's still London. Uh, and uh, he preaches to large crowds. The Crystal Palace was the biggest thing ever built uh, all of steel and glass and so forth, 23,000 people had come at one time. Uh, that's like a million people uh, hearing you uh, today, so very important. Um, but here's the important thing, not just big crowds, uh, but in fact, right, it's, like, it's Billy Graham, but then it's the follow-up after Billy Graham crusades, right, that are so important. Spurgeon wrote out his sermons. Oftentimes, people would copy them down because he sort of just talked off the top of his head after doing his, his homework. His sermons, though, were sold for only pennies, and so it could distribute sermons after, and so they were widely circulated uh, as well. 
um, he was very involved in missions. Um, his good friend, uh, uh, James H- Hudson Taylor, started the China, China Inland Mission, which was very important. Now, what did uh, Spurgeon do? Um, I found this really interesting. Spurgeon was thinking through, how do I evangelize to other languages? And he comes up with a unique thing called the wordless book. Spurgeon developed this new technique for cross-cultural evangelism. The book has several blocks to it. You can see how small they are. Here, you have the black at the top, the red, and then the white. And um, this is a kind of catechism. He could talk about what the black means, talk about what the red means, talk about what the, the, the white means. Sounds a little bit like the four spiritual laws. Or actually, my mother for 25 years was a chalk artist, if you've ever seen that. She did several pictures, and then the black light comes on, all of a sudden the cross pops out and everything. So you know, this is the modern evangelism, different te- techniques which we still need to uh, think about. So you can see uh, uh, Spurgeon's. Now, lastly, though, if that's not uh, a great leadership, Spurgeon, though, became one of the heroes for what's called the downgrade article that he wrote in 1887 when liberalism and when the gospel was being watered down and only social care rather than the power of Christ in the sword and the trowel, this particular article and then that on became very, very important. 19th century uh, conflicts were, uh, were uh, after the church and Christianity. Some like higher criticism <clears throat> through new scientific historical studies was trying to prove uh, that Jesus, as we heard in the sermon, certainly lived but was not really divine. And so he took this on. Secondly, there was well-known books like Ernst Renan, Life of Jesus, from which we get the whole historical Jesus uh, uh, controversies that are still raging. Uh, Jesus is only a man. In fact, by making him a man, we dignify ourselves, because what's the question? Who am I, right? And how do I become more dignified? Lastly, we have as well the error of this time of Darwin and Huxley. Really, you know, Huxley's the one behind Darwin about this idea of evolution of humanity from apes and so forth. Thus, Spurgeon's enormous popularity, you might say, as a public figure and preacher gave him the opportunity to defend orthodoxy, and he led a lot of other people to help do that. Now, a little advertisement. Um, I've... um, subscribe to this magazine. Um, they're, they're great magazines, only $5 each. And uh, there's 116 different issues now over a couple of years. And you can buy an individual copy for only $5. You can also get a CD-ROM or so forth. And, you know, they've got a lot of the famous people here. You can see Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Calvin, uh, a lot of different things, health and, and society. They have themes and so forth. So we'll leave that go. Interest in reviving Christianity is good, but you have to stay on track, right? Uh, Paganism has energy. So does the spread of Islam have energy, right? You know, uh, we can't use the argument, uh, Christianity must be true because look at all these people who are willing to die for it, right? (laughs) This just doesn't work anymore, right? We have to stay on track. We have to keep, there's a certain amount of things we have to think. So revivals are good, but 
the prophecies uh, and, and pseudoscience that happens in the 19th century brings us all kinds of things. Mary Baker Eddy, Eddy's Christian Science, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, prophecies, Joseph Smith and Mormons, right? So new books, uh, a way to revive Christianity in a sense, uh, but in a different direction. Uh, a lot of extremes uh, talking about prophecies, uh, about Jesus' return, right? And this is going to be their uh, millennial ideas, right? So all these ideas of thinking through time, each of which have nothing to do with reviving the gospel or the church, but in an effort to revive and make Christianity attractive to science, a lot of these things are going forth. Even the physical and emotional um, evidences, I mean, I love to sing there's power in the blood, but it's a very 19th century hymn where people are really worried about physical evidences, uh, and so the power of the blood uh, comes forward as well. Okay, we've got to get to the U.S., and I've got like, I think, uh, three more minutes or something to get through this. These, these do go online, so you have to look at them later. Uh, point I want to make, a lot of the revivals in the U.S., are coming from the energy of the Reformed. Many go off track, but it starts with the energy of the Reformed. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. There's really four great awakenings in the U.S. Between 1730 and 1755, probably people know more about these uh, people. Second great awakening, as most historians say, 1790 to the 1820s. Third Awakening, 1850 to 1900. I'll probably pick that up for my last um, uh, moment. And then the Fourth Great Awakening, you know, somewhere in uh, 1960s and 80s when evangelicals arise. And I think the power of evangelicals and politics is sort of going down again, but that's the third, uh, Fourth Awakening. Now, of course, you get this uh, growth of America. You have to always place all of these movements within context, right? America in 50 years is going from 5 to 30 million. Uh, westward expansion. There's not a lot of churches. You don't have a building. You don't have organized religion. All of the congregational Episcopal churches in New England, which is so powerful, are not going to work out there where itinerant preachers and so forth. So groups like Methodists uh, are better hardwired for that kind of thing. Uh, the reform do okay. Uh, camp meetings are really big. Uh, people come forward uh, and so forth. But Presbyterian James McCready in Kentucky. Kentucky is one of these hotbeds uh, early on. Some Scots-Irish were there, of course, uh, many, many Scots-Irish. And so there's some tradition, perhaps, that they want to have. Um, but again, um, this, this necessity almost of a physical conviction, an emotional conviction that the 19th century wants. Who am I, right? Feeding, well, even now, right? You have to feel my pain if you're in university now as a professor. Uh, so I'm trying to feel their pain. But uh, it's, it's a 19th century kind of thing going on, right? Who am I? My own conviction of sin, I have to have something in front. So what are the problems? While Calvinism and Reformed helped initiate awakenings, and many did teach predestination, increasingly belief one could change their destination by undergoing a conversion, right? I did the conversion. Uh, and later on, things like predestination are then ignored. Secondly, many preachers began to predict 
uh, Jesus' second coming as a way to kind of motivate people to want to have conversion, right? So what, what's at the end for you? Well, the world's going to end. You better convert now, right? You better be like the thief on the cross because today you're going to die, right? So uh, you can see why they're trying to use these things. But again, it could pull you away from the gospel. It could pull you away indeed from Christ, right? So this is a problem. Uh, and then revival meetings... Um, often then, when churches started out of revival meetings, they never stopped the revival meeting, right? And so that is not, it's a revival, uh, what they think of the gospel, but not necessarily always the church. Uh, this happens with Barton Stone in the Cane Ridge, Kentucky revivals and so forth. Uh, strange physical manifestations almost became part and parcel of what people would expect if they went to revival, right? It could not just be the moving of the Spirit within your heart. There had to be a lot of things that came along with this. Um, Charles, uh, we'll, we'll end with Charles Grandison Finney as the children are coming in because they want to hear this too. Um, American Congregational Presbyterian minister, founder of modern revivalism, you might say, in the U.S., the burned-over district was that the fire of the Holy Spirit had come in certain areas of New York and Manhattan. He's an opponent, however. He starts slipping of old Presbyterian, and he starts to believe in Christian perfectionism. That is to say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit brings a second blessing. But in this case, um, he's um, unlike some charismatic movements uh, today within evangelicalism, it's starting to lead him away from church, away from the necessity of what Christ does. Again, get back to the question, who am I? What are the emotions I'm feeling? Becomes the interest here. And uh, he is, in fact, um, working towards social care. Uh, but again, the social care becomes something in itself by the end. Um, so we're going to end there because we're... We've run out of time, so thank you.